Prestige listeners, it's Derek. Uh, with me, as always, is my comrade co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we are very lucky to be joined for the first of what we're hoping will be a few episodes here uh, by returning guest Asal Rod uh, from the National Iranian American Council. She's the research director there. Uh, and alongside Asal, uh, we have Puya Ali Magam, who is a historian of the modern Middle East at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, and we are here today uh, to talk about the uh, infamous or famous, I guess, if you're in the John Bolton school of thinking, uh, 1953 Iranian coup d'etat that ousted Prime Minister uh, Mohammad Mossadegh uh, and uh, instantiated all good times for, for Iranians uh, for, for many years after that, I think uh, it's fair to say. Uh, so uh, thank you both for being on the program. And uh, we're, we're, again, very grateful to have you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, the same. Thank you for uh, creating this platform and for having this discussion, specifically today, by the way. <laughs> yes, specifically is, today. We're, we're having this conversation uh, on the anniversary, actually, of the 53. We, we should have waited until next year. We could have done it on the you know nice, even-numbered anniversary, but uh, instead we're here in the... Uh, uh, what's this, the 69th anniversary mm -hmm. of the coup? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we get, uh, let's get right into it. And I want to sort of throw this open to the two of you in a, in a fairly open-ended way, kind of set the stage for people uh, who are not familiar with uh, Iranian history uh, for the situation as it was in, you know, let's say 1950 or 1953 uh, in terms of the Iranian political system, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of ways we could do this. We could talk about oil. We could talk about past foreign interventions in Iranian politics. But I'm going to I'm going to leave it to, to the two of you to kind of, you know, lay the groundwork for people to understand what's about to happen. Okay, so um, it's it's actually a very good question, and and for my students who you know are with me for you know a hundred year history of modern Iran, they have a tough time kind of grappling with the idea that you know because the United States and Iran are have been foes for so long now that they forget that Iran went through this process um, from the late nineteenth century all the way to the middle of the twentieth century, where. Iran was really this country that was super underdeveloped, very rural, and uh, was trying to essentially snatch its independence from the British, Imperial Britain, and Tsarist Russia, right? And they really looked to the United States um, as, this, as this beacon of hope, kind of the way Americans like to see themselves was actually how Iranians saw the United States, right? This city on the hill, this beacon of freedom. And they thought they had an ally in the United States because the United States has snatched its independence from Imperial Britain, just like the Iranians were trying to do the same. And then, you know, my students have this tough time kind of realizing that I Iran was this country that was torn asunder by the so-called great game of the, Brit of the British and the Russians, right? They had divided Iran up into spheres of influence and, and, and essentially imposed governments onto the country. So you see much of Iranian history from 
the late 19th century all the way to the Iranian Revolution was a struggle to get a government and first to create a constitution in the country and then to create a government born of that constitution that would not, I guess, acquiesce to the diktats of foreign powers and, and give away Iranian economy. Mossadegh, with both Asa and I will have this conversation, Mossadegh was an, a 70-year outcome of essentially Iranian leaders coming to power trying to wrest Iran's economic and political independence from foreign powers. We're going to have a proper discussion as to how and why the U.S. then replaces Tsarist Russia and Imperial Britain and essentially changes its relationship with Iran, one from being the symbol to one being this dominant imperial power. But it's one of those things that it's really hard for people to fathom that Iran was this country that was under the subjugation of First, the British and the Russians, and then from the fifth, from the coup in '53 onwards, the United States. Could we talk for a second um, about ideology? Um, because ideology is at least very important to how so many Americans understand Iran post '79. So, what were the co- currents of thought that become dominant amongst the Iranian elite that governs the country um, from the mid-century onward? Is it? post-colonial, decolonial, anti-colonial, nationalist. This is a major theme of the show. We've done episodes on Vietnam and the Kurds, and, and there's a lot of talk about the various strands of thought. So can we talk a little bit about that to maybe set the stage? So what happens in Iran is actually the, the beginnings, and it's not just, it's not unique to Iran, right? Iran is within a context of a region and really a, a world that's been colonized for hundreds of years by European powers. Um, as, you know, sort of piggybacking on, on what Puyo was saying in terms of who is who are those imperial powers. It's not in pre-1953 from the Iranian perspective, it's not the United States. Um, but something to keep in mind is Iran is unique because it's not formally colonized the way that other states are, right? But you know, that talking point is misleading to say, well, Iran wasn't formally colonized, but it wasn't, it didn't exist in a vacuum. It was still impacted by colonial policies, specifically when we're talking about when you when we get to 1953 and when we talk about um, economic foreign intervention or economic foreign control. It's on Iran's oil industry, right? Uh, oil is discovered in the early 20th century. It clearly becomes a significant source of fuel and energy, uh, especially during, especially after World War One, right? We realize how important oil becomes on the global front. And so the Middle East, as being an oil-rich region, becomes tied into all of these uh, sort of colonial uh, movements. So one of the political ideologies that exists in Iran is anti-colonialism, right? Just like it does within within the subaltern region, just as it does within every other occupied or colonized country that is resisting colonialism. And this happens, though, it's during the, when the Qajars are still in power in the late 19th century. Uh, For instance, in 1891, you have the tobacco boycott. And the idea of the tobacco boycott is you have uh, Iranians actually trying to boycott tobacco because of foreign concessions on tobacco um, and that's a form of resistance to say that, no, Iranians should have control over their own commodities, over their own economy. And that predates the, the Pahlavi dynasty, that predates um, Mossadegh, and that predates even the constitutional revolution. So you see this movement that starts. And I say that because sometimes when you talk about Mossadegh, people will say things like, oh, but Iran wasn't a democracy in 1953. So it's misleading to say democratic movement. But not being a democracy is not the same thing as a democratic movement. And that movement existed long before. So you see that continuation. Um, you still have, obviously, the 
monarchist base and which wields power in the country. And that's, you know, one sort of political ideology that exists. But what is the strong, what is the overwhelming majority of the country is this movement towards control over their own resources, which fits into anti-colonial movements, and a democratic movement that actually allows Iranian people to have power, not only over their resources, but over their politics, over their government. Yeah, if I could just add something. Asal and I, we go way back. So we just balance off each other really well. We're, we're really good friends. So just to hear this, it kind of jogs up this, this point that uh, I think it's really important for your listeners to understand. So the tobacco concession was a, was a concession that Imperial Britain forced or imposed on an Iranian absolute monarch. But there was no constitution. He had no, there was no representation, no transparency. He essentially gave away a concession to the British that allowed the British to set up a company, a monopoly on Iranian tobacco growth and sale. Whereas before the concession, Iranians grew, sold, and consumed their own tobacco. It was an entire industry that employed about 200 to 250,000 Iranians. Now all of a sudden, a foreign power controlled a monopoly on this product, this very important product. And what did the Iranian government do when it sold this concession to the British? It basically got money to go and vacation in Europe and spend that money in Europe you know, buying luxury items and having a good time. And this, this creates this impetus in Iran to be like, we need to rein in these treasonous monarchs who do not act in the self-interest of our people. Well, first, we need to cancel the uh, concessions to those of, you know, nationwide revolts. This was in 1890 to 1892. And then in the early 20th centuries, this catalyzed into um, a constitutional revolution. And the whole struggle has always been really... To, to create a government that was representative so that it cannot give away the ec economy of the country to foreign powers and will not be subject to the diktats of foreign powers, right? So this has kind of been the struggle of modern Iran. So I, I want to drill down a little bit on a couple of points. One is the foreign intervention, which you, you've already you already alluded to, Puya, in, you know, in terms of the great game and the role that the, the that Tsarist Russia and the British Empire played. Uh, with Qajars in power, but to specifically to talk about the coup that that forced the Qajars out of power and installed the Pahlavis, Reza Shah Pahlavi, and then the invasion, really, uh, you know, the pre-World War II or kind of uh, mid-World War II, I guess, invasion uh, by the British uh, and Soviet forces that forced Reza Shah out and replaced him with his son, uh, who will become a, who will be a major player here in the story that we're trying to tell. Um, and the second aspect of this that I want to talk a little bit in more detail about is oil. The, this, this is, you know, once oil is discovered, it kind of, you know, tobacco had been the focus in the 1890s, but oil very quickly becomes the main interest. The, the issue is, uh, you know, in terms of uh, an equitable distribution of the revenues from that oil. So let's talk, you know, first about kind of these over political interventions, but then um, you know, about oil in general and what that, what it did to, to sort of bring Europeans into Iran and, and kind of, uh, you know, in, instantiate a European sort of semi-colonial system or quasi-colonial system. Well, I'll take the first stab and then I'll let Puya fill in, fill in the gaps. But basically one of the things to keep in mind is, so you have the, the Qajar dynasty um, that's in Iran until the 1920s. And then you have the rise of uh, Reza Khan, who then becomes Reza Shah, and officially, I think the Pahlavi dynasty officially starts in 1925. Um, one of the important narratives that 
the because you only have two Pahlavi monarchs, right? That dynasty lasts for two monarchs: one Reza Shah, and then Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, who is his son. Um, one well, until the, the glorious installation of the the prince uh, when when he's finally when the United States puts him in power. <laughs> that's true. Well, we'll have a third installation. Like, well, that's been in the making for about 43 years, but we'll, we'll talk about that when it happens. So you have, you have this narrative that comes from the, the Pahlavi dynasty that is essentially that they save Iran from the grips of foreign intervention. And this is a very important part of a nationalist narrative that they create because, as we've talked about, that was such an important point in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century that led to the constitutional revolution. And at that time you had the Qajars and that was the central grievance was that Iranian resources, Iran was basically had no control over its own resources and Iranian people had no control over their own government. So that's the second struggle I, I wanted to make sure that we're talking about. There's two simultaneous struggles that are going on over the last century. One is independence from foreign intervention of the Iranian nation state. And the other is representation, a government that actually represents the will of the Iranian people. That part of it, which is yet to be seen. But when we talk a little bit more about 1953, we'll note that the most independent political period in Iranian history arguably is 1941 to 1953. Now, we were talking about this narrative of foreign intervention. The Pahlavis themselves argue that they come in and they you know, they sort of save Iran from the grips of foreign intervention. And yet the concessions, the oil concessions specifically, that were um, given to the British in, I believe it was 1908 is the original Darcy con- uh, oil concession. Um, those things remain in place. So while they have this outward sort of display of we've created an independent Iran, the perfect example is 1941 itself. So why is the period 1941 to 1953? Well, in 1941, the Allied powers basically occupy Iran, invade and occupy Iran, as you, as you noted, and they force Reza Shah into exile. As from south and west, Britain sends forces into Iran. The Axis poisoned country of the recently abdicated Shah was once a happy hunting ground for Nazi agents. It's really hard to sell yourself as an independent state if you have foreign countries coming in, occupying your land, and basically telling the leader of the country, you have to leave. And so that's when, um, in 1941, he abdicates his throne to his son, who at the time is, I think, like 24 years old, very, very young, um, a weak sort of monarch, and doesn't really have, um, especially when the when Iran is occupied at the time, doesn't really have power or control over it. So the problem with the narrative that the Pahlavis try to disseminate, to propagate that they are the founders of Iran's independence, is that you continue to see foreign influence, foreign control over uh, Iranian economy and Iranian resources like oil, and in fact, even overt political moves like uh, forcing Reza Shah to leave the country. So can we actually talk then a little bit as we run up to the coup, uh, talk about the period of the 40s and place the pre-coup era in the context of the larger loss of British geopolitical power in World War II. Um, so of course, you know, famously, the Tehran Conference is in Tehran. So how does World War II affect what's going on in Iran and particularly relationship with the other colonial powers? Uh, I think, you know, this would be a good time, Danny, to also address the earlier question you had about ideology, right? So, um, you know, the 19th, you could say the mid-century, most ideology was secular, right? It could be the nationalist or it could be uh, Marxist. And then, and then we're going to see how these get 
discredited eventually, and then you see a vacuum created, and that's where Islamist ideology comes into play. But you know, with, in terms of World War II and and the um, that Iranian spring that Assad was referring to, that twelve year period from the occupation of Iran, the tripartite occupation from forty one to fifty three, you see the reason why we call it an Iranian spring really is because. The monarch himself, as Assad um, said, the, the young monarch was very ineffectual, had no good footing, really. Um, and the, the British and Americans and the Soviets were occupying the country. And they weren't there to, to be authoritarian leaders. They were there really to use the country for its own purposes. So Iran becomes this conduit to serve as this basically a, a, a bridge from uh, the rest of the world to get supplies and resources into the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union and, and the Nazis were fighting essentially on in Western Soviet Union. That's where most of the fighting was taking place. And so Iran at the time, this is before the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, had essentially two borders on its northwest and northeast side of the country, had two borders with the Soviet Union. And the Reza Shah, the, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, had created a trans-Iranian railway, essentially from the Persian Gulf all the way to the north of the country. So they used that um, railway, and essentially anything that had wheels or uh, was a railroad, they used all of Iran's um, transport you know, infrastructure. And this essentially becomes very problematic for the Iranians because everything was being used for the war for, and mass starvation starts to occur. And the British, essentially, to exact to exact concessions from the Iranian government was essentially saying, we have all these, we have all your resources under our controls, especially your grain silos and your people are starving. So if you want us to give you access or give you some of this, uh, of the grain in our, in your own silos that we control, we want so-and-so political concessions, right? So this is how the, the dominant powers kind of came into Iran. And, and the British being in Iran and the Americans or the Soviets being in Iran at the time, and the way they controlled Iran and used it for their own benefit was, was not new. The scale may have been new. But for the Iranians, it was this time period of, again, Iran being subjugated to foreign powers. But what was also interesting is that they weren't authoritarian occupations, right? They controlled the Iranian economy. They controlled its infrastructure. They tried to get concessions by essentially holding grain hostage from the central government. But the central government was still nonetheless uh, relatively free. And this is when you really see the freedom of press burgeoning. This is what we call an Iranian spring. Unions begin to emerge. Associations begin to emerge. An entire civil society emerges with freedom of press and everything. And this is you see the flourishing of newspapers and the flourishing of ideas that's, uh, uh, emanating from those newspapers. And then we'll see how in the coup in 53, how the United States ends up weaponizing freedom of press in Iran to start, you know, getting journalists on his payroll and publishing stuff uh, to incriminate Mossadegh to turn the population against them. As you can tell, Asa and I are eager to talk about the coup. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I know, but, uh, you know, I'm a historian. You know, the classic historian comments at a conference, it started earlier and it's more complicated. Could we talk, um, uh, as you all know, could we talk for a little bit about the immediate post-war period in Stalin and Iran and the role Iran plays in the burgeoning Cold War? Well, one thing I want to note about that specific question is when when you get to why it's important, right? Why the, the sort of post-war years, the Cold War, uh, and specifically the Soviet Union, the notion of communism as an ideology is so important is because, well, I mean, one of the groups, of you know, many groups, but one of the political ideologies that 
again, predates, all of these things predate 1941 to 1953. But when we talk about that specific period, it's that they are able to sort of flourish. Like Iranian civil society existed before, which is why you get something like the constitutional revolution decades earlier. But it was really given space because it didn't have an authoritarian at the, at the top suppressing this, um, this civil society and political expansion. It really has the, the opportunity to do so. And so one of the um, groups is the Tuda Party, which is a communist-leaning uh, political party in Iran that emerges, um, that expands, I should say, more uh, during this time as well. And so one of the, in the post-war period, obviously from the U.S. perspective and, and this sort of bipolar bipolarization of power in the world, where you either had to be communist, you either had to go East communism or Western capitalism, right? These were the two concepts that were presented basically to the entire world to choose from. And, and that notion becomes very important much later, which we're not going to talk about today. But like when we get to the 1979 revolution, that specific bipolarity is under question, right? There's this idea of, well, we don't have to go in either direction. There's actually, we don't have to go with whatever are the dominant uh, ideologies of two uh, superpowers. We, these are we're independent states. We can sort of choose our own path. But in the post-war years, the fact that you have some... Uh, communist ideologies as well flourishing in Iran creates this idea that Mossadegh is somehow tied to the Soviet Union to, and this is, this is again, the narrative of the Pahlavis themselves. This is the way, and, and Puya talked about like the press, this is the way that his secular democratic nationalist movement, which was not tied to communism, is undermined by, by making it, by trying to fit it into what from the Western, from the European and American point of view was the number one enemy that we have to stop is communism. And this is how a lot of times that narrative is justified. So I think that's important to note within those post-war years. And then to talk about the um, how Iran becomes one of the opening salvos of the Cold War, to, to you guys' question, is you see that when the, when the British and the the Soviets and the Americans occupy Iran, and that in that Tehran conference, they all agreed essentially what, that when the war is over, they will withdraw their forces from the country. And the Soviet Union under Stalin was very expansionist, right? So wherever they wherever they went, they essentially installed governments, installed pro-Soviet communist governments, and and they did this with Iran too. So they occupied Iran's north, and they installed two pro-Soviet breakaway uh, republics, essentially. And they would they would refuse to withdraw. And this is this is again another opportunity to see how Iran looked to the United States, and the United States actually came down on the side of the Iranians, right? So again, Iran and the United States have not always been at odds with each other. There was a time where the you know, Iranians look up to the United States as an example, and the and the United States kind of lived up to that example. And that was when the United States, that had just got done fighting the Nazis shoulder to shoulder with the Soviet Union, put a lot of pressure on Stalin to finally withdraw. From Iran, and once he withdrew, once he withdrew his forces, the, the the Iranian forces went in and put down those two republics, those two breakaway republics, right? So, but this 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 was a whole international crisis. The Soviet Union refused to withdraw, refused to go against the agreement, and this is one, if not the first opening. Some will say it was in Turkey somewhere or Greece, but this is one of the first opening salvos of the Cold War. This signaled to Washington that this this war alliance, this World War II alliance. Uh, really could have is masking what's a, a conflict that's burgeoning that's going to be coming between the United States and the Soviet Union. And, and they saw it unfold initially in Iran. 
Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like 46. It's very early. The two big 46 things are happening in Berlin and they're happening in Iran. And then you have Turkey and Greece in 40, late 46 and early 47. And that's when it becomes institutionalized. But yeah, no, that's exactly what I was curious about. Thank you both for answering. So do we need to know anything in what happens in the late 40s, early 50s? Well, I think, yeah, I think what we need to talk about, um, you know, Puya, you've referred to this, this 12-year period as the Iranian spring. But... In the lead up to 1953, the, there is a change that happens around 4950 where the Shah starts to kind of become more politically minded, let's say. And this is the period in which Mossadegh uh, leads the, f- the formation of the National Front, which will become the sort of uh, dominant player in the, the Majlis for a time. Why don't we, to, to get maybe a running start into what happens here in the late 40s and, and as we get into the early 50s, uh, talk a little bit about who Mohammed Mossadegh was and his background uh, and how he came to kind of be the, the, the person to found this, I would say, you know, coalition of people who wanted to preserve the gains of the Iranian spring, the liberal kind of, you know, free press, free speech, uh, democratic form, forms of that that period um let's yeah let's start with you know maybe a little bit of his background and then get into the the issues well i'll just note one thing about his background is that he's actually his family is from the landed aristocracy right so he's uh, his his background is, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to someone who becomes a constitutionalist but that's very much they're related you know, the, to the, the Qajars in some way is that is that right i think i think that's right Actually, I just have a very brief question, Asal, based on that. Just to give a sense, because oil is obviously important, what is the Iranian political economy? If there's a landed aristocracy, is it still heavily agrarian? Is it urbanizing? Just to give a little political economic context before we get into Mossadegh, I think that will help our listeners. I think Puyo can add to this, but from, uh, you know, in terms of urbanizing, it's really, you know, the idea that Iran becomes like the quote, this quote, modern state is, it depends on how you define modernity, right? Is, is modernity tied to a modern infrastructure or is it tied to a modern political system? So what the Pahlavis are successful at, um, and partially because with the discovery of oil in the early 20th century, you suddenly have more money coming into the state, right? The Qajars, um, for most of their reign, one of the problems was, of course, they didn't have, uh, they, they couldn't secure a lot of revenue. But the discovery of oil in 1908 creates a lot more revenue for Iran and then gives the, when the Pahlavis take over, gives them the ability to create these infrastructure projects and modernize the state in, in various ways. And when that happens, it helps to urbanize the society a little bit more. But that still happens later, I think, under the, the second Pahlavi monarch, especially. So one of the things that he does is he allocates a very large portion of the Iranian, uh, basically like budget, uh, national budget to agriculture, to agricultural development. And so, you know, he's uh, investing in people who are agricultural engineers, investing in things like a sim- something as simple as pesticides, right? Why? Because to be an independent modern nation state, you have to have, you have to have food security. And in order to do that, you have to modernize, um, your agriculture. So that's, so that period, uh, that's when those things start to happen more in terms of urbanizing in Iran, when Tehran becomes a more urban city. I don't, it, there's more of that in the second half of the 20th century than in the first half, but the, the roots of that start with these modernizing projects. Yeah, I think, uh, Danny, I think you, you, you touched on two points, really, when you talk about the, when you asked us to talk about the late 40 early 50s period but then he also still you know i'm still thinking about the ideology question um 
Reza Khan, who becomes Reza Shah, he um, essentially, to his credit, uh, helps uh, bring Iran into the 20th century to some extent, right? So Iran was very rural, um, didn't have a, a, a proper education system, didn't have a taxation system, and all these things. So it didn't have modern roads or infrastructure like that. And he, you know, he he as a strong man did this, right? So he's he's he, he the people discuss his role. He was still a brute autocrat, right? But he kind of through that autocracy, like kind of forced these things forward in a very brutal way, right? So there's this story, I think it's an actual story if it's a myth, but either way, it's kind of tells you the perception people have. Like he ordered this bridge built and then he basically forced the engineer who designed the bridge to stand underneath the bridge and him and his, and the Reza Shah and his family kind of rode over it in a carriage. And the idea was that if it's going to collapse and we're going to die, the engineer should die with us. This is kind of how, at least this is the myth goes. This is how he pushed you on forward. But the cornerstone of Reza Shah's regime was the military. So he built up a modern military. That military didn't stand a chance in the tripartite invasion of the country in 41 and essentially collapsed. But he was a colonel in the military, and he essentially overthrows the Qajar dynasty in 1921 and gradually consolidates power into 1925 and 1926. Now, what people don't understand or don't really know is that he was a colonel, but right before the coup, he was promoted to be a general. We still know him in, in history as a colonel, but he was actually promoted to be a general. What they don't know is that that promotion came from a British officer, General Ironside, right? So think about that. The British promoted him. The British certainly played a hand in his, him, him coming to power. I think the famous quote is that Reza Shah says, the British helped me come to power, but they don't have any idea who they helped bring to power. His son in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, basically lived in the shadow of his father, even though his father died in exile in South Africa. Right. And by the way, the fact that he died in South Africa should tell you all you need to know about him. This is South Africa, right? In, in, the, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, the son basically lived in the shadow of his father, always very insecure of, of his father and how his father was a, a severe man and disciplinarian and, and brought that into the household. So in the late 40s and 50s, Muhammad Reza Shah also had some sort of military training. He, he was also an Air Force pilot. His whole thing was, I want to fill my dad's shoes. I want to, I don't want, if my dad was, in theory, a constitutional monarch, but in practice, an absolute monarch, I should be no less, right? If, if anything less than that, I am, am embarrassing my father. I am not living up to his legacy. So his whole thing in the late, 40s and early 50s was control of the Iranian military, right? And his idea was, if I control the Iranian military, then I am the ultimate power in the country. So you see a showdown uh, between, eventually, a sh an eventual showdown between uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh and the Shah over who is the commander of chief of the country. So and I... Sorry, I just wanted to go back to, because uh, we, you had asked earlier about this idea of, you know, urbanization and, and sort of when we went from like landed aristocracy and when that changed. Again, that doesn't happen as much until the second half of the 20th century. And that's because partially, so as we said, he was more, they were more focused on, um, you know, just sort of the basic infrastructure of the state, creating a modern state. And one of the pillars of that is, of course, a modern military. But by the 1960s, there's pressure, and this is, again, in the Cold War context, there's pressure on um, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi 
And actually part of that pressure is coming from the United States to say that you need to do certain reforms. And that's when he has his white revolution in the, 19, in the early 1960s. And one of the, I mean, the key really aspect of the white revolution was the agricultural and the land reforms, right? It was taking, uh, I mean, there's a currency from the period where you have on the currency and currency is always important because it shows you the sort of mentality of the state. And it pictures Muhammad Reza Pahlavi giving land deeds to like, uh, you know, agrarian workers, farmers, things like that. So, so that happens more later, but going back to Mossadegh, which was the original part of the question, talking about him and his background is in the period leading up to the constitutional revolution, where he becomes like part, you know, he is, he's an avid constitutionalist. That is his background. His background is being part of, you know, the landed aristocracy in a period in which Iran is still very much um, in a feudal system. I have a slight anecdote. Can I just give a funny anecdote real quick? Uh, Asan termed this, uh, or she, she noted that this whole process of reform in the 60s was called the White Revolution. I asked my students, I'm like, why do you guys think he called it the White Revolution? He ultimately changes the name to the Shah and the People's Revolution, but initially it was called the White Revolution. And I asked my students, I'm like, why, why is it called the White Revolution? And they think, and they're like, is it because he was a white supremacist? And that doesn't come out of nowhere because the Shah bought into the European racial hierarchy and styled himself as not only Persians being Aryans, which is not true, but him being light of the Aryans, Aryameh. So the, it's this funny thing, but I did, I did not see that coming when they said white revolution, and I kind of chuckled to myself. But he called it a white revolution because it was supposed to be not a red revolution. It was not supposed to be communist. And also... He wanted to use the term revolution because this is the era of revolution and he wanted to appropriate the term revolution to be like, I am leading the revolution. The revolution is not against me, which ultimately it becomes against him 15 years later, by the way. I think when we we will get to this, but the uh, 2500 year anniversary celebration of the Persian Empire will certainly be part of the conversation in this, uh, I think, in this uh, uh, series here. Hey everyone, it's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So let's go back to, um, and and uh, Derek should have warned at the beginning, our pronunciations are horrible, so forgiveness in advance. But um, let's go back to Mosaddegh. And and who he was, because um, I really want to get a good sense of him. Because one of the themes that we've been reporting in the show is like these these kind of twentieth century men, like Ho Chi Minh, going around the world, and all these other big revolutionary leaders. But from what Asal just said, and I'll just I, I have total ignorance about who he was. It's he sounds more liberal constitutionalist than revolutionary. So he comes from the landed aristocracy. Where is he educated? Who does he align with? Um, is this a form of transnational liberalism? Just let's let's go deep into him to understand who he was and why he appeared to pose a threat to the colonial and neo-colonial powers emerging in the 1950s. So to your to your point, there's a couple of things to keep in mind when you talk about Mossadegh. Is the way that he is depicted um, both by the West and by the Pahlavi monarchs? Um, is really, I mean, the, he is, it's like he's the, this is how they depict him. Like he's this erratic, sort of psychologically irrational. Um, he's, because 
what he really is. And it's uh, Ervan Abrahamian in his book, uh, The Coup, I mean, he's like an authority on the history of the coup, um, talks about the fact that while Mossadegh is depicted this way, uh, intentionally, to sort of like undermine his legitimacy, and while the coup itself is framed within the Cold War fear of communism, the reality of it is it's about imperialism and nationalism. Right? It's about imperialism and the control of imperialist powers. And the fact that you have, and Iran is not unique in this, you have throughout the colonized world, anti-colonial revolutionary movements to take back power and take back control of assets and resources um, for the actual population. So yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, he's educated as a, a lawyer, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he has, he's very much a uh, someone who believes in liberal democracy. Um, and his, it's secular. That's one thing to keep in mind as well. So his ideology is secular. He's, uh, the, the party he founds in the 1940s is the National Front. So this is very much driven by the idea of nationalist sentiment in the country, which is why he becomes the sort of nationalist figure and iconic hero. Just very quick question. By secular, is that anti-clerical or is it running in parallel? Sorry, uh, could you say that again? So, like, I'm thinking of, like, Benito Juarez in the mid-19th century. Secularism meant anti-clerical, you know, like, anti-Catholic church. I was just wondering if there's a similar, like, anti-clerical thing going on here, or is it just, like, you separation between church and state? I'm trying to get uh, the, the tenor of the secularism, basically. He was more separation of church and state, right? It wasn't necessarily anti-clerical, but it was that the... that the state and the the constitutional apparatus should have should not be tied to and, when, and of course in the case of Iran we see how later that's completely different the the approach of certain revolutionary groups um, is in fact very much tied to the idea of we have to we have to use a sort of religious lens um, as part of our revolutionary rhetoric and then the state that develops after that but for Mossad yeah, secularism is a separation of church and state it's the idea that you know, his notion of constitutionalism is not tied to religious doctrine. Yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the most important members of his National Front coalition was a clergyman named Ayatollah Karshani, and he was a big religious figure who kind of got the religious classes behind Mossadegh until um, the CIA and the British showed up with a briefcase of money towards the end of the crisis and, and basically bought him off, right? He, he broke away from the coalition, unfortunately. He was the Speaker of Parliament, too. Uh, to, to Asa's point, you guys, they when they in the Western press first they they talked about Mossadegh as this guy who was trying to bring you know trying to bring Iran's independence to Iranians, and then you see the tenor changing. Mohammad Mossadegh, Premier of Iran, meets the press to reaffirm his government's unwillingness to arbitrate with Britain over nationalizing the Anglo-Iranian oil company. With chances of a settlement fading, the West's best hope is that this sickly man in whose frail hands may lie the key to peace is as anti-Russian as he is anti-British. And one of the things they ended up doing was, just, just like Assad said, they, they presented him as somebody who was effeminate. And when I say effeminate, they, they use very sexist language to describe him. He's somebody that's hysterical, he's emotional, he cries a lot, he's not fit to be a leader, not like us Westerners. But the reality was, Mossadegh was an Iranian nationalist. When we say nationalist, we really, I want to remind your listeners that nationalism in the third world context is really just about 
it's not this superiority mentality or anything like that, that we're better than others. It's just about we want to have a country of our own and we want to be in control of our own resources and politics. That's what Mossadegh wanted, right? And he used Sorry, that's the actually a really important point. I just wanted to say that's a really important point. And, and I didn't think about to bring that up. But yeah, when we talk about him as a nationalist, it's not this like the nationalism of xenophobia or, you know, that's not the type of nationalism we're talking about within the context that he's, he's a nationalist. It's simply to have sovereignty, which are the ideas, ironically, that come in, right? It's like that double-edged sword of colonialism. It's like the ideas of sovereignty and independence that are brought in, but of course, not for them, actually. It's just like, oh, the West... What might call the dialectic of enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Exactly. So, so Mossadegh was he was a trained lawyer, right? Um, and and he he also was familiar with international law. He was educated in Switzerland and then in France. He spoke French. So when the British sued him for nationalizing Iranian oil, which because to the British that was insane, that how could this third world country take a resource that is ours? The British thought is their resource, and and to them Mossadegh was a radical. Today we look at Mossadegh, we're like he was he was very moderate. He just basically said, this oil should belong to us, and we'll pay you for, for whatever we, we, we nationalize from you. We're not going to just take it and own it. We'll pay you for the company, whatever you know, infrastructure you build, we'll pay you for it. And then when the British sued him, he did not send his lawyer. He went as the lawyer to defend Iran, and he spoke essentially in the language of the imperialists. So he spoke to them first in French, so they could understand him, right? No one understood French. I mean, this is the UN, so I'm sure they had translators, but he spoke in French, and he spoke using the language of international law. And international law now, but especially then, was designed and written by the imperial powers who formed the United Nations, essentially to safeguard their interests, because a lot of those countries that now are, are numerous in the General Assembly did not exist at the time. They were under colonial rule, and so the imperialists or the, the victors, essentially, of World War II created the, the, the UN essentially to safeguard their interests. Now, all of a sudden, it was the sky using their language, not just French, but the language of international law that they had crafted. He used it against them. And there was three judges on the panel that essentially voted all unanimously for Mossadegh and the Iranian case. And one of those judges was also British. But th- again, this is how imperialism works. We're going to use international law that we wrote to our benefit, and if we can't win our case through international law, as 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 they didn't, the British lost, we're just going to ignore the court ruling, and might is right. So then they continued with the embargo of the Iranians, and they tried to overthrow him. The British tried to overthrow him. When Mossadegh caught wind of the British plot to unseat him, he declared the British personnel in Iran persona non grata and expelled them and shut down the embassy. He thought that was the end of the story. He didn't realize that the U.S. embassy was then going to be the the base of operations later to unseat him. Uh, well, Puya, I, I I think you might be mistaken. I thought there was a rules based international order created after <laughs> World War II. Um, yes, uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm a little confused myself because yes, I thought always brought the light of the. Law and reason. Uh, it, it, it's also very, uh, it's interesting in terms of our Vietnam series. It's very similar to Ho Chi Minh after World War One, trying to meet with Wilson and use the language of self-determination. This is a, a theme repeated uh, over the course of the, of, the, of the 20th century. But before we get into the coup itself, could you maybe um, give a sense, what was the actual policy platform of Mossadegh? So there's nationalization, but let, could we actually dig into who he is? Because he's commonly remembered in sort of the parlance of, of anti-imperialists as the socialist Mohammed Mossadegh. 
But could we, what does that mean in the context of Iran? Um, what were the actual policies he was implementing? What was his power base? Who was his support? Just to really give a sense of, of who this guy and his political formation represented. Okay, so Mossad, this whole thing, first of all, there, by no stretch of the imagination was Mossad the, a communist or a socialist. That's the way he's painted. Uh, essentially, the United States either painted him as a socialist or in tandem, they also said that he is too effeminate, he's too hysterical, he's too womanly um, to govern. And if he's allowed to govern, then socialists will dupe this guy because these these widely third world people are dumb. They don't calculate and rationally like us Westerners. And they'll dupe him and they'll they'll either convert him to communism or they'll just throw him out and take over power themselves, right? He was in no stretch of the imagination a communist or a socialist. His whole thing was really basic, right? He's like, look, Iran has been governing itself in this way. We give concessions to competitors, to our imperialist competitors. We gave a concession to the British, and then the czarist Russians were like, well, if, you, if you're not going to give us a concession, then we're going to overthrow you because we're competing with the British, and you just gave the British a concession. You have to give us a con- possess- uh, concession. That's called positive equilibrium. Mossadegh's whole thing was, look, we want negative in- equilibrium. We're not going to give anything to anybody. So if, if we don't give something to the to the British, then we don't have to give something away to the Soviet Union. We want to be in charge of our own resources. Not so we could not sell the oil. You know, what's the point of that? Iran was not a country that at the time was using a lot of oil. The whole point was we're not going to – because people had this idea that, oh, we couldn't trust the Iranians with this resource because then they're going to hold it hostage and not sell us. Iran was an underdeveloped country. Oil was a major revenue. Mossadegh just thought we should be in control of it and we should sell it and then we should use the money to build the country. Really basic, right? So Mossadegh was, to Assad's point, he was a he's part of the landed aristocracy. He had an elite education. Um, he was not from a working class background at all. And he was not a communist. He, he, he looked... His source of inspiration was the West. This is why he studied law and international law and spoke French. And when he came, unlike Ho Chi Minh, when he came and sought a meeting with the United States president, uh, at the time it was Truman, he actually met with Truman. President Truman's luncheon guest for their first meeting. The premier is urged to try for peaceful agreement in the quarrel over Iran's nationalization of British oil holdings. And the world hopes that from this friendly get-together, some solution will emerge. That was a big deal. Truman actually just met with them and, you know, pledged a lot of sympathy, but very little support because World War II had just ended and Britain and the United States had just fought shoulder to shoulder. So Mossadegh thought of the United States as having this revolutionary history against the British, which is true, but that was, you know, two centuries or so ago. And this was a different time period where now the Americans were wartime allies with the British. Asa, do you want to add anything about Mossadegh? I just thought when you were, you know, one thing that's important to note, as you're talking about the way that he is depicted, right, specifically even the effeminate language, right, it's Orientalism, right? This is like Orientalism 101. And it's one of the things that I thought it's important to mention, like when when you have uh, Edward Said's book in what, 1978, 1979, and the impact that it's had on our understanding is because this, this was common, absolutely common to use that kind of language to undermine anyone in the region um, or really throughout 
basically colonized people to undermine them when they were trying to advocate for their own freedom, independence, uh, and you know, economic independence. So I just wanted to note that as you were, as you were using the language, I'm like, oh yeah, sounds like Orientalism. <laughs> if I could just add, there's this, Mossadegh appeared on the cover of Time Magazine twice, um, 51 and 52. Um, Time Magazine was really big deal at that point. Time Magazine, no one reads Time anymore. But uh, in Time Magazine, you see a lot of this discourse of, of them, you know, casting Mossadegh in this irrational, effeminate, hysterical light. They actually straight up call him a wizard. You know what I mean? Like he's this wizard from another world. You know what I mean? The really interesting thing is the Time Magazine where Mossadegh was Man of the Year. You see this image of Mossadegh, old, old frail man, and behind him is a, a close-up map of the Middle East. And you see a fist coming. And I love the Time Magazine covers; they're usually very interesting. You can just spend hours looking at him and dissecting him, including this one. Mossadegh's in the center. You see Iran in the background on one side of on one side of his head. And there's a fist coming out of it. And the fist is coming out of where Iran's oil is in the south or southwest. And on the other side of Mossadegh's head is the other part of the Middle East, which is Egypt. And you see a fist coming out of Egypt right near the Suez Canal. So Mossadegh was a, was a figure of monumental importance, not just in Iran, but in the region and in the developing world. So the Egyptians, for example, looked towards the Iranians um, to see if this struggle against the British, because it was a two-year struggle, if if Mossadegh would succeed in nationalizing the Iranian oil company and emerge victorious from this nationalization, because if Mossadegh could do it, then Nasser and the Egyptians were like, then we could do it as well when it comes to our Suez Canal, which was a company. The Suez Canal was a company. The Suez Canal company was owned. The, I think the majority shares were owned by the British. The minority shares were owned by the French, which is why. Three years after the Iranian coup, when Nasser nationalized it, the French, British, and the Israelis invaded the country. But Nasser ends up learning from the coup in Iran. Nasser's whole thing was, well, the Iranians nationalized the oil. We want to nationalize our Suez Canal company. We hope the Iranians succeed. If they succeed, then we're going to follow suit. The Iranians nationalized. Mossadegh was overthrown. The CIA overthrew him through the Iranian military. Therefore, I still, as, an, as, a, as a head of state in Egypt, want to nationalize the Suez Canal Company still. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn from the mistakes of the Iranians. I'm going to make sure the military is behind me 100%. And it's easier for me to make sure the military is behind me because I'm a military officer who is now head of state. And so when, the, when he nationalized the Iranian, when he nationalized the Suez, Suez Canal Company, the military was 100% behind him, which is why the French and British couldn't unseat him and they had to invade the country. Uh, guys, I will add, it looks like in that picture, it looks like Egypt is about to flip everybody off the Mossadegh Time Man of the Year cover. I don't know what that means, but uh, it's an interesting detail. So this is all extraordinarily um, important and informative, and maybe we could end on this question. What is Mossadegh's base in Iran? Who supports him? Where is his power actually located, particularly in the wake of, of Puyuyu just saying that what Nasser does is he makes sure the military is on his side, which suggests that the military is not on his side. So who is actually supporting him and how? Well, one of the things to keep in mind is he's representative of a nationalist movement, and therefore he has broad support within the country. Um, support that he capitalizes on, right? Like he that he uses. He often uses the fact that he is this popular figure within the nation, broadly speaking, because it, when you, you know, um, appeal to nationalist sentiments, that's not like a niche base. You create a much larger base. And that's the base that he uses both 
to physically show his support when they actually come to the streets to show his support to him and in, in order to give him legitimacy. So, you know, the, there's this symbolic moment where the Anglo-Iranian oil company flag insignia comes down and the national Iranian oil company uh, insignia goes up. And that's this monumental moment, not just for Iranians domestically, but like Puyo was saying, I mean, in terms of resistance towards imperialist powers and colonialism, it's this huge moment, which is why you get the reaction you get from, from Britain and even the United States, even though the United States had not necessarily taken the same role in trying to control Iranian resources. The idea that you could have this kind of nationalist movement with so much populist support was a danger to any kind of imperial project. I think Asa was spot on. Um, you know, he had a lot of support from religious classes, secular classes, classes, nationalists. Uh, it was a common struggle that involved, co- you know, the entire nation, essentially. Okay, I think uh, that is a good place to end. Uh, we have kept you all uh, long enough, but we will get into the coup itself and the aftermath next time around. So, um, again, Asal Rod from the, the National Iranian American Council, Pulia Ali Magam, I uh, want to mention your book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprising, which is on sale now. People should go out uh, and grab that if they haven't uh, done that for uh, already. Uh, and Asal, you're, uh, you know, of course, at, at NIAC, and uh, you're writing all over the place these days, actually. Maybe at foreign exchanges soon, actually. <laughs> I was going to say, Asal, too, has a book coming out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you do. Why don't you, yeah, you guys can tell people, you know, give a little plug here. That's, it's your time. I guess my little plug is just the, the book is, uh, the publication date is officially August 25th, but it's available to order right now. And it is called The State of Resistance. Uh, and it's available on Cambridge University Press, Amazon, everywhere you can buy books. And I will be ordering it 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. And all of you, all of you out there should be ordering it as well. Uh, so again, Asal Rod, Puya Ali Malcolm, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And we will uh, have you back soon to, uh, to continue the story. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you.